Well, good morning. I'm thankful and glad that you are here with us today. Uh, church, uh, those that were here serving earlier today and uh, doing all the things that you guys do, we thank you and we appreciate you. Um, if you are a guest, we are excited and thankful that you are here. We are blessed by your presence and we want to be a blessing to you. So please let us be able to connect with you, get to know you, share a little bit of our story. We'd love to get to know you and some of your story. Um, today, as I mentioned, we're going to be in John 4, 27 through 28. So if you have a Bible, if you have a device, please Open it. We want to be in the Word. I want you uh, looking at the text and seeing what uh, Jesus is saying, what we are being taught here. And so as we continue the story of the Samaritan woman in John 4, today we're going to be studying that true believers worship in spirit and truth and rejoice in the God who satisfies and brings the harvest. And so have you ever been longing for something? I mean, have you ever been longing for something to satisfy you? Maybe you have been uh, physically hungry before, or maybe you've been thirsty. Uh, maybe after some enduring you know, physical exercise or some kind of uh, physical work where you were just sweating and struggling, or, or maybe uh, you've longed for a person, uh, maybe in a romantic way, and dreamed and hoped that it would work out. Uh, maybe you've longed um, for this certain dream that you have had since you were a kid or a young adult or this certain uh, desire or situation that you've longed for to go your way. Maybe you had a, a plan for your life. And so think with me in your current situation today. What are you longing for like right now? Can you even define it? Can you understand it? Do you know? Do you see it? You see, oftentimes in life, God is doing something that we don't notice. God is doing something so wonderful, so glorious, but so unnoticed by so many humans. Because often we're longing for the wrong things. We are being satisfied in the wrong things. Sometimes even when we have desires that are not bad in of, in of themselves and desires that seem good. We can want those desires more than God and end up missing what God is actually doing. You see, God wants your longings and your desires to match his. Hear that again. God wants your longings and your desires to match him. And in our text today, John 4, 27 through 38, we will look at the story of the Samaritan woman and highlight this section of the story in John 4, 27 through 38 that will teach us today that true believers worship in spirit and truth and rejoice in the God who satisfies and brings the harvest. And so to understand our text today, um, we've been going through it, but for those who have been here today, we're going to summarize the first part of the story of the Samaritan woman found in John 4, 1 through 26. And so if you remember with me, in the first 15 verses of John 4, we learned that Jesus, he was just living his life. We learned that he was going, that he was actually making disciples. He was working faithfully in his role and calling as the Messiah. And then by God's plan, Jesus passes through Samaria, a land where the Samaritan people lived, who were a people that Jesus' people, the Jews, hated. Why? Because of their mixed ethnicity, them being of Jewish and Assyrian descent. 
The, the Samaritans were also mainly hated because of these perverted and distorted worship practices that had arisen from them as they had built their own temple, the Samaritans had. And they had their own mixed religion that was part Jewish and part idolatry, which was from their ancestral mix and their mixing of all these things and these ideas. It became to be the religion that they had. And so as we see and we learn from the first 15 verses of John 4, um, we see that Jesus revealed himself to the Samaritan woman. And in, in verses 1 through 9, he showed us that the living water shows us our thirst, that he actually reveals to us that we are thirsty, which should humble us to see that we are desperately thirsty or in deep eternal need. In verses 10 through 14, the text showed us that the living water, Jesus, shows us his true nature, which illuminates us to see God as the only one, the only one who can satisfy our thirst. And then in verse 15, we saw that the text showed us that the living water, Jesus, offers his thirst-quenching hope. He actually offers it to us, which comforts us to know that his thirst-quenching hope is actually eternal. And so to summarize that, those first 15 verses of John 4, we saw that Jesus had revealed himself to the thirsty as the living water who shows us our thirst and his true nature while offering his thirst quenching hope. And then that brings us to our text from last week, John 4, 16 through 26, where the Samaritan woman starts to see uh, Jesus and then confronts her on her sin. And he teaches us, firstly, in verses 16 through 19, that we must see our sin. Like, we have to see that we actually have sin, which shows us that God has actually regenerated us or saved us or made us new. It's that first part of salvation where he opens our eyes and saves us. Secondly, in verses 20 through 22, we saw that we must recognize who we worship because many will spend their whole lives deceived worshiping a false god like the Samaritans were. And then thirdly, in verses 23 and 24, we saw that we must worship in spirit because God is spirit. Yes, Jesus in the flesh came, but God is also spirit. And we must live in his spirit and not any other spirit. And fourthly, in verses 23 through 26, we saw that we must worship in truth, that true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth because God is, God is the truth and we must live in his truth and not any other. So we learned that. We, like the Samaritan woman, we must ascribe worth to God. That's what the word worship means, to ascribe worth to something. So we must ascribe worth to God, to worship, uh, worth to God, meaning we worship Jesus as God and, and live as true worshipers. Jesus said this. He promises that some of you, that we would worship in spirit and truth, and that we would actually be true worshipers. He was prophesying about us that we would worship him in spirit and truth. The problem is man, some people worship him in spirit, some people worship him only in truth, and they're not abiding in Jesus. They're not loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They're loving God their way. Like I'm a spirit person or I'm a truth person, whatever voice they talk in. The, the, Jesus says no. He says one day my real children, you're going to know them because they're going to worship me in both. And that's powerful. And that's where the text brings us today in John. And so join with me as we read our text in John 4, 27 through 38. Just let it soak in. It's part of the story that seems a little disconnected, but hopefully it will make sense. Look at verses 27 with me of John 4, and we'll go all the way to 38. So again, the story is happening. Jesus had just said, and the Samaritan woman's like, hey, this Christ is, uh, he he's, will come one day to tell us about himself. And then verse 27, uh, verse 26, Jesus says to her, I am he. 
Um, I who speak to you am he. So he reveals who he is. And then at verse 27, it says, Just then his disciples came back. They mar- marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. And see that the fields are white for harvest. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. There's a lot there. Um, But again, today we will be learning that true believers worship in spirit and truth. We can't separate that first part. We don't have time to get into that. But hopefully it will make sense that we must worship in spirit and truth. He said, I'm sorry, true believers worship in spirit and truth and rejoice in the God who actually satisfies and brings the harvest. So let's look at verses 27 through 30. As it will teach us our first point today, which is let's come and see Jesus. So let's come and see Jesus. Look at the text. Read verses again, 27 and 30 with me. Remember, Jesus had just declared who he was, and then the story kind of takes a little sidebar here and says, just then his disciples, they came back. So they marveled that he was talking with a woman. So the disciples had been sent. They went to go get food, we learn later in the text. And it says they marveled. They were like, oh, they were amazed. They were surprised that Jesus, he was talking to a woman. Because back in the day, that was unusual. Not necessarily for the Greco-Roman people. They were very licentious and did a lot of uh, things. And I don't think they had a problem talking to anybody. But in the Jewish culture, men and women were usually separated. This is very, uh, even today in Middle Eastern culture, men and women are generally separated and I think there's, some, there's some, some good there, but also some things that are just culturally, like, uh, uh, just too strong. The Bible doesn't necessarily say that in, in, in all the settings, but that's their culture. They were used to that. And so they thought Jesus was being kind of, they were surprised, like, what is he doing? Um, but then look what it says. It says, but no one said, what do you seek? They kind of were learning who Jesus was, and I think they had some respect and authority. And they're like, we don't want to rock the boat. We're not sure what's happening here. But it says, but no one said, the disciples, no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you with this woman? Or or, why are you talking with her? They they were maybe very nervous to address the situation. Anybody been there? Or they didn't want to disrespect Jesus. Or were like, man, this is kind of awkward. I don't know what to say. And so verse 28 says, so the woman left her her water jar. So this is a, a kind of a thing we may skip over. But it's actually a big deal. That's how they would get water. We can just go to our home and turn on the water faucet, right? Back in the day, they had to get these big jugs of water, water, and the women generally went to the well, and they would get their water, and they would carry it back either on their shoulder or on their head. And so this was a big deal that she was so, this was her way of living. Remember, we had just talked about the living water and how Jesus was the living water. And so she 
left her physical water to go in search of the living water. Now, this is a big deal. And it says, she went away into her town, like we sang early, or go tell it on the mountain. She went and told it on the mountain. She went and told the people. She was so excited. What did she say in verse 29? Hey, come, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. This is crazy. Like, if you think about what she said, she's like, hey, this Messiah, he called me out. He called out my sin. He knows everything about me. Like, that's how excited we should be about how Jesus actually knows us and knows our sin. Because he knows us, guys. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our strength, but he knows our weaknesses. He knows those things. I would even argue, in a sense, he allowed you to have those things so that you would be weak and know that you need him. It's what the Samaritan woman realizes here, like, oh, man, he knows everything about me. And she's, I think, happy and excited about it. And then she says, can this be the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one that was prophesied about so many years ago? And it says, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, because of this woman's evangelism, she's so excited. She's just declared who Jesus is. She's like, come and see our first point. Let's come and see Jesus. What, is, what happens now? Other people then go out. This is a picture of discipleship. Remember how John 4 starts of Jesus making disciples? That's what is being uh, visualized here now. It is being brought to us from the text. She said in verse 29, Come and see a man who, who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of their town and were coming to him. So the Samaritan woman invites people to come and see Jesus as she now did see him, as she had been regenerated and saved by Jesus. Jesus confronted her on her sin. And, and, and from the woman's words, we can see that, that she actually knew Jesus now. That, and that's beautiful how salvation can happen like that. Jesus read her mail and knew her sin, and, and the text strongly implies that she is now saved and changed, that she is compelled and moved to tell others about this King of Kings, this Messiah. Because I believe here she repents and believes. Again, but the strongest point that John has been making from the beginning is that her salvation came from God and that he changed her heart and regenerated her heart that produced this lightning fast initial repentance and turning from her sin and this turning to Jesus and his kingdom in true belief as the one um, who, who called us to worship in spirit and truth. Now the woman, I believe, is worshiping in spirit and truth. As John the Baptist said in chapter 3, if you don't believe me that the argument that Jesus is making is that I saved her. John just said in chapter 3, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That should humble us and be like, oh, man, you're telling me I didn't save myself? No. Jesus saved you. God ordained this. He chose you from the foundations of the earth. That may be heavy for some of y'all or like, I don't get it either, but I have free will. I don't get all that. But it says a person cannot receive even one thing, not, not even your salvation, unless given from heaven. You see, we know the Samaritan woman is saved. She knows the king of kings and is part of this harvest and kingdom now because she has loved God because he first loved her. And she is now a true worshiper, like many of us in the room are. She's a true worshiper who worships in spirit and truth. And so once you are saved by Jesus, you should have this zeal. And it shouldn't be fake. It doesn't mean fake happiness. But the zeal, this is my encouraging challenge to you. 
if you know the king of kings, not a fake zeal, not something you produce, but do you love God so much? Do you remember how he saved you from everything he knows about you? And this zeal for the Lord just burns in your soul for him, that you can't not like tell other people about him. You see, that zeal, this joy to invite others is evident in the Samaritan woman. She invites others to come and see and know Jesus. So we learn then that one can joyfully declare, like the Samaritan woman in our first point, and say, let's come and see Jesus as we worship in spirit and truth. We can say that. We should say that. And that leads us um, to, to learning from the Samaritan woman that we must invite others, like our second point today, which, which is, let's eat from the food that Jesus gives. So if you're worshiping in spirit and truth, if you know him, remember what we learned a few weeks ago, this, this idea that if we are worshiping in spirit and truth, that means that we should be dieting on the food that only our great God can satisfy with. Look at verses uh, 31 and 34 of John, which say, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. You're like, Jesus, we went, we went to get, get food, and now we're back, and we want you to eat here. They're just trying to serve Jesus here. Here's some food. And, and then Jesus said to him, and I don't think he was being rude, or Jesus was perfect, right? So he could never be rude um, in, in a sinful way. But it may appear rude, or it may appear blunt, or it may appear like, He's changing the conversation because he does. He's, make, he's teaching. Jesus is the master teacher. So parents with your kids, you can do this sometimes in conversations with brothers and sisters instead of just uh, the small talk we do sometimes. How's the weather? Everything's great. Uh, like, man, bring it, bring it to Christ. You don't have to be a, a jerk about it or rude about it. Jesus wasn't. And he's not doing this 24-7, okay? But every once in a while in those teachable moments, they're there for us. Gospel moments. Look what happens. They're like, hey, they're not, they're not doing anything bad. They're like, hey, Jesus, here's some food. They're trying to serve the, the, their rabbi, their teacher, their master. And then verse 32 says, but he said to them, guys, I think he was just really like feeling serious, the weight of what was going to happen, all the gospel implications of him one day having to go to the cross. And he's like, guys, you don't even get it. He says, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And I think he said it with some gravitas, with some heaviness. And again, it may maybe have even seemed sharp. And they're like, huh? The disciples said to, to one another, has he, verse 33, has, he brought, has anyone brought him something to eat? Like, is he good? Like, did you guys get here earlier? What happened? They're, they're confused. Verse 34 says, Jesus said to them, listen to this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And I would say this is our mission statement said in a different way. Our will is to do this too. Jesus' will was to do, be obedient to the Father. We too must be obedient because he was obedient for us. My food, Jesus said, what I eat, what I feast on. Remember when Satan takes Jesus to tempt him in the desert and offers him food? Jesus says, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's one of my favorite verses. Like, man, that makes sense. It, we don't live by physical things alone. That's what we think, especially as Americans. We have so much physical blessing and things and stuff and toys and video games since we were little and TikToks and iPhones and all this stuff that we think we live by physical alone. But I would argue, just like Jesus is saying, life is way more metaphysical than you think after the physical. It's out there. It's spiritual. Jesus said, one day you'll worship me in spirit and truth. 
So those people who are like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, you guys are getting crazy on there. You're being like, okay. And the people that are abusing the spiritual, and they're like, hey, it's they, they, be, they become uh, people that deal in witchcraft. Jesus is saying, no. He's saying, the spiritual world is true, and there is truth. And when you start to live in those tensions together, man, you start to live. That's what John has been talking about. You have this eternal life. And Jesus is saying, my food is to do the will, what God has, what God has called him to do of him, of the Father who sent me to accomplish his work. Look how obedient Jesus is. Jesus knew his mission because he knew the gospel, which was his message of him being God with us from the beginning of time to his return. Jesus knew his mission from the Father to be the one who would bear the wrath of our holy God, the Father on the cross. And then Jesus, the perfect God-man, who lived perfectly on earth, was then murdered to become the sacrifice for all mankind who allows us like we saw in john 3 the chapter 4 to be born again and to worship in spirit and truth like we learn in john 4 because he was obedient to the father on earth as he sacrificed his dignity his honor and took on all shame the bible says he became sin that we listen to that bible says that he became sin so that we could become the children of god we could become the righteous children of god because our perfect king of kings, Jesus, he didn't stay buried in a grave. You guys know the story. Most of you do. But he rose from the dead in the power of the spirit, which he would then give to us before he ascended. He would give that and he ascended into glory with the promise that he will come back, y'all. It's more than physical. It's not just about the stuff and the life and decisions and work and all that. Yes, that stuff's there. It's important. We don't neglect that, right? Of course. But there's more going on. There's so much more going on. And that is what Jesus is calling you, to abide by the power of his spirit and to know his truth. And then you live. You see, our king calls us to repent of our sin like the Samaritan woman or turn away from it by walking in this gospel forgiveness that he gave and he gives and he calls us to give as well. That's why it's in the Lord's prayer, which then comforts us to know that because he was just and righteous, we can now believe and live in him. Forgiveness is one of the most powerful things God gives us. It's something we walk in daily and we forgive people for certain things and continue to grow in that. That's why it's in the Lord prayer. Lord's prayer. It's a daily thing. We come to the Lord. We ask him to teach us. It's the story in John found where it says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. You've been forgiven much, you get it. Just like the Samaritan woman, she gets, and I've been forgiven so much. He, know, he knew my whole story, and he's, he's giving me this living water. So we can worship in spirit and truth. We can actually worship in spirit and truth as we live this gospel story of God with us as the perfect one who makes us perfect in him. And guys, if you know him, he has declared that you will worship him in spirit and truth. Like that just makes, that, that animates my soul. Like, man, I don't even know what that really means sometimes, but I know it. what Jesus said, that we would be true worshipers who operate in this space that many so-called believers won't. 
It's an invitation. It's this beautiful story of the gospel, of the truth of Jesus and who he was, which excited the Samaritan woman because she finally saw him clearly and truly in her spirit. It says we must worship in spirit, not not in the Holy Spirit necessarily, although it is implying that. It is saying because if you must worship from your spirit with the actual understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, we must worship in the truth by knowing who the truth is. Does that make sense? It's abiding. This is another way for, are you abiding in me? He says, I abide in you. I live in you. You live in me. This is the biggest theme of John, that we would find eternal life. That in Jesus says in John 17, 17, 3, is him abiding in him, worshiping in spirit and truth. Huh? It's like the Bible's one connected story that all makes sense. It is all calling us to love this God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This leads us to our third point. Because the woman saw him clearly in her spirit, which now reflected God's spirit. And that should help us see and then declare in our souls our third point today. Let's see the harvest. Like we see Jesus, now let's see the harvest. Look at verses 35, and we'll see our third point again as we declare, let's see the harvest. Look at verse 35 with me. Jesus says, do you not say there are yet four months, then, the, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So this idea of white harvest are these grain fields would sprout and it would look like a white sea just ready, ready um, to be harvested, to be plucked. You see, farming takes time. As I was preparing for the sermon God gave me a little, a little, I think, a blessing of a gift. I remember, I forgot, like, my grandpa in Puerto Rico, there really aren't that many more farmers in Puerto Rico anymore. He was a farmer. And uh, I remember going to the farm. We'd go to Puerto Rico every, every few years. And I remember this beautiful, colorful uh, crop that he had. I mean, there's all kinds of oranges and, and bananas and things that I don't even know what they are, mangoes. And the, it was this uh, colorful, vibrantly verdant Puerto Rican country mountainside on the farm he owned, and the cows had to be, and you know, he, he, my grandpa was like, uh, he gave me a cow. I thought that was so cool. Like, I own a cow in Puerto Rico. Now, you know, I was like, oh, it's not, it wasn't that great of a thing. But it, it, it was sweet. I remember that. And that made me feel good as a kid. And, and I remember he would work, he worked that farm for years, y'all. They came, his family came from Spain years ago, and they landed in a similar terrain from the, uh, uh, oh, I forget the islands now, um, off, uh, off Spain. They lived there. And the point is that in, in, in farming, there is a season, this is what Jesus is saying, where the grounds must be tilled meaning the soil must be prepared. And so once this happens, you plant the crop or sow the seeds, and then there is a time of waiting until the seed grows to a mature stage uh, where the crop uh, can then be harvested and used. It was the Canary Islands. That's where they came from. Sorry, I had a uh, brain block. You see, the disciples would have understood this farming language better than uh, us modern people today. Now, my grandpa was a farmer. I, my, my parents weren't, and I wasn't. So I'm like, I don't know. I have to read about farming to understand it. You see, the disciples, again, they, they would have understood this farming language better than us. You see, uh, we just go to the grocery store, right? Or, or pay. Some of you may be farmers. I don't know, but I doubt it. Um, we just go to the grocery store or we pay more money. When, when, uh, you know, when farming or the economy is going bad, we may pay a little bit more, but we don't feel the burden of what the farmers feel. We can still basically get most 
crops that we want, mostly, okay? Um, but people in Jesus' day, in the 2,000 years ago, man, they really depended on the rain. Uh, that meant they weren't going to eat. They really depended on the timing of the crop that they planted. They had to do it at the right time because if not, like, uh, they, they would pray and hope that the weather would hold up. That even the non-Christians, the Greco-Romans, they would offer sacrifices to gods and making sure the rain came and all. So that, it was just, it's been historically farming has been a big deal um, for people, for humanity. That's why Jesus uses it a lot as an example and a metaphor for what's happening in his kingdom. And so, Again, they would get to a point and, and pray that their, their crop would be harvested or to be ready. You see, the harvest was this awesome time of rejoicing and celebrating that they actually had, to put it in our terms, food and money and provision. Okay? They actually had, they could make it. And they depended on that usually every year. You see, Jesus is calling us to look up. He says, lift, lift, our, lift your eyes. He's calling us to look up and see the kingdom of God that is amongst us, and to see, as he says in Matthew, that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That statement is true. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus, Jesus will say that in Matthew 9. And so my question is, as our third point says, do you see the harvest? I mean, do you really see people as that opportunity, a lot of us just go to the coffee shop, we, we work, we do this, and, and we even have, like, a lot of times we throw, we throw gospel parties and we have people, and it's like, man, these people are the harvest. And God is giving us an opportunity to step in and to engage them, to be like the Samaritan woman. It didn't say that she gave him a dissertation. She's like, man, Jesus knew everything about me. He, he knows all my brokenness. He knows my sin. She didn't give him a, a sermon or a 10-point uh, uh, best, you know, 10 things to do to, to receive Jesus. No, she just shared her experience of, of, of how Jesus changed her. And that's what a testimony is. That's all we're called to do is sharing your story with someone. Share your story. If Jesus really changed you, there's a story, there's a story to tell. And so tell that story. And then that will invite other people to share their story. And then you help fill in the gaps. That's what Jesus said. Hey, he's like, hey, I need water. He's like, hey, she, and then that's how, that's how he started the conversation. He's a master evangelist. He actually asked someone who wasn't a believer for, for drink. He's human. Be human and evangelize into humanity and you'll see what the Lord will do. So do you see the harvest, y'all? Do you love that Jesus brought the harvest and he's calling you to reap? Meaning to go out and share the gospel in your daily lives at, at work, at home, wherever you go as ones who have his authority. We have his authority. So do you see the harvest and rejoice? Do you see the harvest and rejoice? Man, Jesus gives you, he gives you the authority to reap. Let that sink in. And so my encouragement is we're going to sing this later today a couple times to cry out to Jesus as we, um, and we're praying this for our church. Lord, bring your harvest. Bring your harvest, Lord. Not so that we can grow and, and, and be a big church. I don't care about that. I hope you don't. But th there are people out there like us here today who need this message. And they are out there. It's not just something Christianity is not, um, uh, it, it, I could say, it, there are some seeds that things seem like they are dying. But Jesus says, no, the harvest is always out there. No matter what the world says, what people do, um, the harvest is there. Jesus can save through whatever politics, through whatever agendas are being pushed. Jesus is who he is, and he's stronger than any um, uh, agenda or any uh, politics or any other thing that we think sometimes is stronger than Jesus. 
he can save. That's, that's what I'm trying to get us to see, that we would declare in our souls, Lord, bring your harvest. And so are you hopeful? Are you excited and expectant? As Jesus is in our text today, he's excited about it. I think he's not just like, oh, the harvest is there, you know. It's, no, I think he's, he's excited. The Samaritan woman is excited. There's a zeal. Remember that zeal she has? That, that he has brought this harvest and he continues to bring the harvest. So pray to God right now in your heart and in your soul to allow you to live in spirit and truth as your eyes are lifted to see the harvest. Ask him, and I'm, I'm praying this for myself, guys, to change our hearts and to renew our minds like we learned last week, to really live in spirit and truth, to transform your heart and your soul that you would cry out with joy and expectant hope, like real joy. Cry out, bring your harvest, Lord. You see, to cry out in your soul, bring your harvest, Lord, you must forget about your personal farming. We got to forget about our personal farming. We care about it too much. We care about our crop too much. All the crops that we want to grow, the resources, the money, and the kingdom, and the future that you are longing for, that actually clashes with and denies the kingdom of God, you guys know what those things are. I have my own things. Now, God can give us good things to farm and to build and to chase and to grow. God is, he's a God of ambition, of godly ambition, not selfish ambition, right? But many of those things, may they never become idols that replace your love for the kingdom of God, even the good things. Because whether you see the harvest or not, Jesus is making a point, it's right in front of you, whether you see it or not. Because whether, again, you see the harvest or not, guys, it's right in front of us. That's what Jesus is saying. The harvest is right in front of you. But if you're looking down, he says, lift up your eyes. If you're looking down and worried about the ways of the world and the crops of your dreams that you have planted and the harvest of the world that you hope to reap and not the harvest of God, then you will miss out on the kingdom of God and the joy in the sowing and the reaping that he is doing right in front of our eyes. You see, when we say, bring your harvest, Lord, we have the mind of Christ in mind, that we are longing for what our great triune God desires, that we are desiring or longing for the harvest to be brought in like Jesus. But think of this, the harvest is not of much value unless it is blessing the farmer. Again, the harvest is not of much value unless it's blessing the farmer. A harvest by itself will rot away, right? If you don't get to eat and reap from the harvest, what's the point of it? There's no point. If, it's not, if we're not blessing the Father with our lives, if we don't see the harvest as a blessing, but Jesus, he's the farmer. As we learned earlier in John 4, Jesus made disciples. He was farming, and he invites us to farm as well as we are to make disciples. That's the cool thing about this. So our third point is clear, which allows us to declare, let's see the harvest, which is plentiful, but know that the workers are few. And this brings us to our fourth point, that let's, let's rejoice about the harvest. So look, look at these last few verses, verse 36 and 38 with me. Jesus says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, 
Like, man, those who are, are, are the ones who gets to reap, you get this receive wages. He uses money as an example. And then he uses fruit, this fruit for eternal life. Again, John will say later, this is Jesus. It's not just a thing we get. It's a person. So that the sower, listen, the sower, who's that? The one who's sowing the seed. And reaper may rejoice together. For here, the, the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap. In this sense, Jesus is saying, I'm the sower. I'm the one who labored. And he says, and you will reap. So one sows and another reaps. He says, I sent you to reap. To, to reap means to bring out the, he, he, to bring out the crop, to, to harvest the crop. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling us that. He's saying, I, I sent you to reap that for which you did not work for or labor. Others have labored. And I think he's saying, he's talking, alluding to the Old Testament, all the story, John the Baptist himself. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. That, man, that humbles us. The church that came before us, all the mess <laughs> that the church is, all the beauty, like God has sent those workers. And people will look at us and be like, man, they were off, you know, probably. <laughs> but, but they will too be saved. If the Lord doesn't come back, Jesus is saying, rejoice about this harvest that we have entered. Stop fighting and worrying about the pointless things in the world and rejoice in the harvest that we have entered, that others have worked to build, that we get to be a part of. Be thankful for his bride, the church, her warts and all. Be thankful for the sovereignty of God, which has, has us literally today worshiping right now, reaping a harvest that only he brings. This reminds me of the Apostle Paul's argument to the Corinthian church. They were arguing over who to follow in the church, and Paul or Apollos, they were both strong leaders. And Paul said from 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That's the point I think Jesus is making. He uses a little different analogy. And then Paul says, so neither he who plants or he who waters is anything unless the sower is God, but only God gives the growth. That's humbling. I don't care how gifted you are, how good of a preacher you are, how good, of a, how good your systems are. A lot of times churches are built with man-made growth. It's easy. Uh, there's documentaries out there of, of, of mega churches gone crazy and big because they were building the growth. They were building it the wrong way. That's not reaping. That's not the harvest that Jesus has called us to reap. It's one person at a time. It's not just, yes, the harvest implies a bunch of people, but how do, it's one person at a time, looking that person in the eyes, knowing how to disciple them. God gives the growth. Growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. The, the workers are one thing, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. That's the point. And you are God's field. You are God's building. He's talking of the church. So church, rejoice in what you are called to do. Water and plant and pray and cry out in your soul in spirit and truth for God to bring his harvest. And as our fourth point calls us to declare, let's rejoice about the harvest. Because as we worship in spirit and truth, the ultimate farmer, our triune God, he actually is bringing the harvest. Let's not forget. And so let's pray um, and, and, and live joyfully as he brings the harvest. And so a few questions before we end. Will you trust Jesus and God's plan to bring his harvest? Do you love that this is actually God's plan to use us, the church, you as the church, and me to bring his harvest in? Like he's given us that privilege, the privilege, the joy. Does that animate your heart and soul 
that you actually rejoice? Will you do your part as the church and in the church to bring the harvest? We all have a part. Remember, as we worship in spirit and truth, we learned today to cry out from our souls and declare today that firstly, we, are, we learn to say, let's come and see Jesus as we worship in spirit and truth. Secondly, we learn to say, let's eat from the food Jesus gives, which allows us to worship in spirit and truth. Let's eat from the true farmer. Thirdly, we learn to say, let's see the harvest, which is plentiful, but know that the workers are few. And then lastly, we learn to say, let's rejoice about the harvest, because as we worship in spirit and truth, the ultimate farmer, our triune God, actually brings the harvest. And so, guys, we can rest and trust his sovereign plan to bring the harvest. Again, to summarize, we learned today that true believers worship in spirit and truth and rejoice in the God who satisfies and brings the harvest. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are the one who says, Lord, the harvest is plentiful. It's white. Lord, let us see that as we get bogged down by the weight of the world and, and the worries in our lives and all these things. Lord, you've called us to this mission that you were called to. Your food is from above. Lord, your food is to do the will of the Father, and I pray, Lord, that we submit to that will and that you open us, our hearts, our minds, lift up our heads and our eyes to worship in spirit and truth and to cry out, Lord, bring your harvest as we respond now in uh, uh, worship music, Lord. Help us honor you now and let us sing um, to you and worship you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you.